This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The Mexican but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Almost 66 million people worldwide have been forced from home by conflict. If recent trends continue, this figure could increase to between 180 and 320 million people by 2030. But Mexico is somewhat a success story, with the country overcoming the migration hump and becoming now a recipient country. Every migrant that enters legally first gets a bracelet. This is their golden ticket to be able to enter Mexico legally and then go through the process to be able to eventually get a humanitarian visa. That process- My name is Moises Rendon. I'm the Associate Director and Associate Fellow of the Americas Program here at CSIS. I'm filling in for Richard Miles, the regular host of 35 West. And I'm here with a colleague and friend, Errol J. Boke. He's a deputy director and senior fellow of the Project on Prosperity and Development and the Project on U.S. Leadership in Development. Thank you, Errol, for joining us. Happy to be here, Moises. So Errol and I had this great opportunity to go down to Mexico, to Mexico City and to Tapachula, in the south border of Mexico just last week, and just to do a research project, right, looking into Mexico's migration flows from Central America and others. We will talk about that in this episode, but before we get into that, I want to ask Errol the big picture first. Errol has become kind of a guru of migration issues here in CSIS. He and his team has traveled to more than 10 countries around the world, especially in the Middle East, Africa, Asia. And he put out a great report last May about how the world should be responding to forced migration. So, Errol, tell us a little bit where you see this phenomenon going. How is the world responding to this phenomenon? Absolutely. I think it's tough to have this conversation without talking a little bit about the political changes happening around the world. I think you see rising levels of populism. You see increasing amounts of protectionism and What I sometimes like to talk about is increasing wall strategies and decreasing formal pathways for people to move. And so I think what we've seen historically is that when barriers to entry and barriers to movement get higher, um, and at the same time you lessen the avenues that people can move legally, that creates all sorts of problems. People get pushed into the shadows, They uh, travel by more illicit and shadowy routes. Um, They themselves become much more at risk, and these are already vulnerable people. You quoted the 66 million number, which is actually close to 70 this year, and that's just forcibly displaced. That's not economic migrants. It's not environmental migrants uh, or environmental refugees, as sometimes they're called. This is, this is a problem that just if you look at population growth, it's not getting any better. And in fact, it's, as you pointed out, could get a lot worse. And our policy responses globally have not, have not been of the type that we need. We need to actually create 
regular, orderly, and safe passage for a lot of these people. And at the same time, we need to be focusing on the reasons why people leave. And I think both of those things are, are greatly missing in the conversation right now globally. Yeah, that takes us to Mexico now, right? It's much closer to home. Mexico is a huge country. Over 126 million people live there and now has a new administration, right? And so I want to ask you, how do you see the Mexico's government responding to this? We have a Peña Nieto administration just until last year, which main focus was on the security front, right? Mm -hmm. Now we have Lopez Obrador, who seems to be more open to the migration flows from Central America, kind of focusing more on the human rights front. But how do you see the new administration responding to this? migration and the Mexican society as well? I think it's a great question. As you'll remember when we were down there last week, I mean, this was something that a lot of people talked to us about. Uh, Just the difference in tenor between the Peña Nieto and the López Obrador administrations. The sense is that there's cautious optimism amongst civil society, uh, migration advocates, folks that think about forced displacement, that the López Obrador administration is going to be a little bit more hospitable, that they're going to put in place policies, acknowledge the fact that Mexico and the migration picture in Mexico has changed. If we were sitting and doing this podcast 20 years ago, Moises, we'd be talking about uh, Mexicans going to Texas and California to work in the fields or work in factories or construction. And that's still part of the conversation. But now you have people coming from the Northern Triangle. You have Venezuelans coming. You have uh, Haitians coming. You have all sorts of people that are outside of Mexico. So Mexico is not only a country that's exporting people, it's a transit country. And increasingly, those people, sometimes based on U.S. policy changes and sometimes just because they see that there is actually a life for them and there's jobs for them in Mexico, they decide to stay in Mexico. And so I think people are cautiously optimistic about the Lopez Obrador administration seems to be signaling that they understand this. To be fair to the Lopez Obrador administration, they've only been in since December 1st, but right. there's not really a policy backbone to, to this. I think there's good ideas, but I mean, what do you think? Yeah, no, that's that's what we hear. There are good ideas out there, but there has not been any plan and to how to respond to this. For example, the Mexican government earlier in January um, respond by issuing humanitarian cards, right? Which kind of work as humanitarian visas, but they're more legally like cards. But they only do that in a short window, 15 days. So in 15 days, they had about 12,000 humanitarian cards issued mainly to Central Americans. So the fact that they did it in such a short time kind of makes me wonder the point that you're making. Are they really ready to, to respond to these migration flows from Central America? And more broadly... Is Mexico's mindset ready to to become a recipient country? Because it's already happening. So it's kind of more in the psyche, right, of Mexicans. And that's where we probably going to see that happening, but it's gonna take time. So that that's kind of my question on, on when Mexico's gonna be ready for to respond to this. Yeah, and I and I think that's the million peso question right now. <laughs> uh, nobody really knows. I think again, signals are positive that they have realized that this is an issue. But let's be honest, it's maybe not the biggest vote-moving issue even in Mexico. 
immigration here in the United States tends to be a very political thing. And I think to a certain extent in Mexico, that's true. But I think the Lopez Obrador administration is also focusing a lot on other things that they care about, corruption, oil, some other uh, issues that are domestically important to them. And, and I think the signals aside, it really remains to be seen whether they put in the policy infrastructure. Uh, the humanitarian card thing, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's an example of them trying to do the right thing, but not really thinking through the unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. For example, when word got out that they were doing this, a lot of people made a rush to the Mexican border and there was unequal implementation of the humanitarian card system. To a certain extent, it seemed like it was up to the person issuing whether there was freedom of movement throughout the country, whether there was the right to work with the card, how long it lasts. All these things are really critical things that international bodies like UNHCR and I, the International Organization for Migration, I mean, this is what they get up and think about all day, every day. And I think they're doing their best to be responsive and, and supportive to the Lopez Obrador administration, but I think there's a lot more systematizing, if I can put it that way, that needs to happen and a lot more policy and legal underbelly to some of these good intentions. Yeah, and the other part of the issue that we hear is that it's not only Central American migrants. I think you mentioned before, there are also returnees from Mexican descendants coming back from the U.S. to Mexico. And that's been an issue, too, because some of them, if not most of them, have had some sort of hard time setting in in Mexico, in their home motherland. Yeah. <laughs> because of cultural differences, language is a barrier many times. And the Mexico government doesn't seem, at least to me, this is something that they need to address in a more comprehensive way, right? You have Mexican nationals coming to your country, but there's really no many options for them to find a job if they find this, all these barriers. So it's a complex type of a scenario for Mexico moving forward because, again, the migration flows are coming from every all the sites, including their own from the U.S. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, a lot of those folks that are coming, you know, I, I want to put back to Mexico in air quotes, because ultimately a lot of these people were brought by their parents or by family members when they were very little. Yeah. Some were even born in the United States and are leaving either because they've been deported or from the United States to Mexico or because there is a fear of deportation for them or a family member. And like you said, these are folks that grew up in Chicago mm -hmm. and Charleston, South Carolina, and they're going back to rural areas, ancestral homes in Mexico that have different educational standards, that have different quality of life, and oh, by the way, a vastly different language that they may or may not speak. I had a meeting with Teach for Mexico, and Teach for Mexico is modeled off of Teach for America, or at least inspired by Teach for America. But the gentleman that I met with said something really striking. He said, we think of these quote unquote returnees from the United States as just being some small group of people. 3% of the entire Mexican education system right now is children returned from the United States to Mexico. Wow, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's an incredible number. Yes. That the Mexican education system, which is okay, it's not great, is pretty much unable to deal with, especially when you get outside of urban areas. Let's talk a little bit about the caravans, right? This is 
not a new phenomenon, like many people think. This has been an, a way of how migrants travel at least since 2013, if I remember correctly, there were the first gatherings of people, groups of people traveling together. However, we start seeing the caravans playing a bigger role in October 2018, when we start seeing, you know, 10,000 people crossing, using Mexico as a transit to get to the U.S. border, right? So we ask a lot of questions to many people we, we met in Mexico about how these caravans were formed, how their leadership structure works, who are in these caravans in the first place, and why are people deciding to travel together in the caravan? I'm really glad you brought this up, Moises, because I think before we went to this trip, caravans are such a political hot button issue here in the United States. And I kind of wanted to see, you know, what was the actual rationale for the caravans? Who were they? And I think what we found down there was really interesting and in that nobody really knows. They are out in the open. Much of the migration from uh, Central America up through Mexico to the United States has happened informally in the shadows, smugglers, coyotes, etc. And now with the caravans, we can actually see it. So there's several different things happening here that I think your listeners should be aware of. One is that it's unclear whether these are new migrants uh, or whether these are just people that would have moved anyways that are now seeing strength in numbers and safety in numbers and coming. It's also unclear whether there is a formal leadership structure and whether there is formal funding. Uh, This was something we heard a lot about, and I listed at least five different conspiracy theories, what I I would label conspiracy (laughs) theories, as to who was funding these. And I won't bore your listeners with with, with those, but I think it's, it's unsurprising at one level that there were so many conspiracies about the leadership and the funding. The most likely scenario that I see, and but I would love your thoughts on this, Moises, yeah. as well. The most likely scenario that I see is that someone or a small group of people in Honduras or El Salvador or even Guatemala decides to go north and they post on Facebook and they say, hey, guys, I'm going to be traveling from here to here. And as they move north, they get more uh, Facebook posts. People share the fact that this is happening on WhatsApp. And people that were maybe going to move in the next several months or year uh, anyways just kind of hop on board and off they go. Uh, There's nightly meetings of of people to decide where they're going to go. But it seems to be that these structures are rather disorganized and rather organic um, a lot of misinformation floating around the caravans themselves and a lot of um, lack of information. I mean, we heard one story of a migrant family showing up at the border with Mexico and someone from the international community showing them a map of exactly. Mexico. Yeah, no, that was shocking. And that person was like, wait, I thought I was almost there. Yeah, in and the U.S. Said, yeah. Yeah, they, they, yeah, exactly. I, I thought I was almost in the U.S. And they said... Mexico is a huge country. Yeah, which it is. So, I mean, what what were your main takeaways from the no? From I the mean, I, conversations? I I agree. I mean, it, it seems to me also that these caravans and this group of migrants are very improvised. They're not really organized, and many times they break into different groups too, because as different people have different needs. And what we see is that most of them are families, right? They're 
mothers traveling with their children, people trying to just seek a better quality of life to the north. And the drivers for them to leave their home country are also, they're very, right? But as you mentioned too, there is a very important economic factor there that is making many migrants to leave. Their salaries are just not enough to afford to put food on the table. But then you add into that the violence that is going on in Honduras, in El Salvador. El Salvador has one of the highest homicides rates in the war. And then you have corruption, you have political institutional crisis. Uh, so you start adding all these complex elements and that's why people are desperate and trying to go to a better place. But then maybe a deeper pull factor, and we hear that from many people too, is the fact that their families, some of their family members are already at the north. I mean, either in the US or in Mexico. So that family pull factor is very strong for many people. You mentioned something that I think is really critical here. People that think about migration and forced displacement, oftentimes it is easy for us to disassociate economic reasons from sort of the root causes of forced migration. So people being forced from home versus people choosing home. I think what we found in Mexico is that's a really false choice. Because what happens a lot of times in El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala and beyond, and I would argue that I'm going to reassess globally based on what I heard in Mexico, what happens to these people is that they don't have the economic means with which to protect themselves from violence. And I think that's a really critical thing, whereby if you ask a migrant, they may say, oh, I'm poor, and so I'm seeking a better life. But honestly, if they were poor, but then weren't at risk of violence because of their poverty, they may not have felt compelled, dare I say forced, to go north. Yes, that's a key point that I think we saw definitely in in the Mexican context. Let's talk a little bit about the role of the private sector. I mean, I know your um, program, um, one of the main focuses is to seek ways of how um, the private sector and innovation can play a role when it comes to all these phenomena, including the migration, forced migration phenomenon, right? And we met with a couple of private sector um, companies and, and others in, in Mexico. Um, so what what's your take on the approaches that you saw in Mexico when it comes to these migration flows from Central America? Are they good examples to follow? And what, what, what were your main takeaways? I, I think the quick answer is that there's a lot of innovation happening in Mexico. I think one of the reasons is that because Mexico is a historically people exporting country, You know, like I said, 20 years ago, we would have been talking about Mexicans leaving. There hasn't been a huge focus on people arriving or people returning from the U.S. or um, people staying. And so at one level, as we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, that poses policy challenges. At the other level, that creates huge opportunities in the private sector. And I think we saw at least three examples of uh, just from the meetings that we had right. that were really, really compelling. Um, two of them are examples, I would say, of public-private partnerships. Um, but the one that I want to start with is we met with a, a group called Ola Code, yes, which was started by this uh, woman who was from the north of Mexico. 
And she felt very grateful that she was able to study, um, get scholarships, and she wanted to do something using her skills uh, for Mexico. And so what she realized was that with all these people returning from the U.S., there was an incredible opportunity to train people that had pretty good educational skills and certainly good English skills in in coding and in other types of um, sort of machine learning and, and computer programming. And so what she did is she created this really interesting business model and importantly, a private sector business model. She is looking for returns on her investments, but what she's doing is she's investing in people and she's training them. And oftentimes these are people that live in in poor areas because they came back from the US with nothing, they don't really know anybody. And she's training them and then placing them with tech firms. And, And I don't know if I would categorize what's happening in Mexico as a tech renaissance yet. But I would say, at least in Mexico City and certainly in some other cities around the country, there's certainly a tech boom happening. And there's a lack of qualified people with the language and technical skills needed to work. So she has figured out a market gap and then she has filled it. Oh, by the way, also having a side benefit for for migrants. At the Ola Code initiative, I think is great. It's preparing migrants for the future too. I mean, coding is is a skill that is going to be needed and it's a new language. Absolutely. But I want to briefly talk about another company because again, we met with so many different people. This is Asylum Access. They're not a company, but they, they are a bridge between the refugees and asylum seekers to companies who need that labor, right? And and what they do is that they try to help uh, on the legal procedure front prepare all the documents that the refugees need to work legally in Mexico. And then they match their skills to the companies who are looking for that specific skills and they send it to the companies. And the companies then take the whole interview process. They assess if that person is, is qualified for the job. And then the company kind of give them a three month window to, to try them out. The success rate, they said, is really, really high. And in fact, companies are now asking asylum access for more refugees, <laughs> which is surprising, right? Because it's, it's I mean, so it's not surprising. It's, it's just uh, uh, amazing how, how um, it, the role of the private sector can, can play in a beneficial way when it comes to this vulnerable population. Absolutely. And I think what the success that asylum access is having, which I agree, I was very impressed by them and their business model, when you look from a global perspective, is, is actually not that surprising. I mean, we when we put together this report that you mentioned last May, we had the mayor of Dallas on a task force that was associated with the report. And we, we went to Stockholm and, and Detroit and all sorts of other places. And every time we talked to local leaders, they said, refugees are the best workers. They're the most dedicated. They've literally sometimes been through hell to get here. They're very happy to be here. So there may be some short, quick barriers to overcome, but s- send me more refugees. I'm, I'm real interested yeah. in that. So <laughs> I, at one level, I'm not, I'm not surprised. I also think that what we heard over and over again, Moises, was that in Mexico, there are jobs. Like the economy is doing okay. Yes. Yeah. And so you have simultaneously people arriving in the country, and then you have available jobs. And so it's the asylum accesses of the world have an opportunity for matching. And, and while we're on the matching thing, I want to bring up uh, the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, 
also has a very interesting and uh, when I explain it to your listeners, they're not going to think that this is all that innovative. But when you talk about international institutions that are big and bureaucratic, this type of innovation is really intriguing. And so what they've done is they, for people that have gone through the asylum process and been granted asylum, refugee status in Mexico, they're actually matching them with jobs in parts of Mexico, like the central of the country or, or the northern part of the country, where the the factories and the um, sort of small businesses, everybody needs workers, right? And so they're working to make sure that standards are, are international and, and that workers' rights are protected. But what they're doing is they're doing this hard matching of people who are wanting to work. They want to provide Everywhere I talk to migrants and refugees around the world, everybody wants to work. Everybody wants to provide for their family. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, man, you know, a perfect day would be me getting assistance. No, a perfect day is them going and working for their lunch and being able to provide for their family. And so UNHCR in Mexico has figured out, and Asylum Access and, and others, have figured out that there's this gap. Yeah. in the skills matching. The last point we want to touch on is moving forward. On one hand, you have the conditions worsening in the Northern Triangle countries in El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. More people are fleeing their homeland as never before, right? And then you add into that Nicaragua, which is a country that is going through a very deep humanitarian and economic political crisis. Then you add Venezuela, which is obviously the worst humanitarian crisis in the region with 3 million people already fleeing the country with 5.3 million expected to flee in total by the end of this year. And by the way, on the Venezuelan, there are very few Venezuelans crossing the southern border in Mexico. If I remember correctly, there were only about 58 people crossing that border in 2018. However, the asylum seekers from the Venezuela has risen tremendously. I think there were about 28,000 asylum seekers from yeah. the Venezuelan community in Mexico. They arrive in Cancun and Mexico City at the airport mostly. Exactly. But then on the other hand, you have a country with a new administration that is welcoming migrants and is creating high expectations to, for many migrants in the region to come in Mexico. So the question I had, is Mexico ready to receive and absorb increasing wave of migrants from Central American countries and other countries in the region? Right now we're seeing few thousands, maybe 10,000, but we haven't reached the 100,000 level which it can happen. I mean, there are scenarios where you see migrants just fleeing Guatemala and Honduras because the conditions are just really bad. So is there any any way Mexico is ready for, for a bigger migrant flows? Not yet, is the, is the short answer to your question. Uh, as you mentioned, there's a little over 126 million people by last count uh, in Mexico. And you're talking about the numbers of people that have arrived are in the tens of thousands, maybe six figures. That's not a that's not a huge portion of the Mexican population and the Mexican economy. And so I think that there's there's definitely they've gotten by without having structured responses yet. And they've they've piloted some things they've with the humanitarian cards and others. I think what they need to do is there are folks in civil society, some of whom we met with and some of whom we didn't get the chance to meet with, 
that are that are wanting and eager to help the government with the legal backbone that they'll need, with the policies, with the procedures, um, and they don't. I don't get the sense that there has been that connection between the Lopez Obrador administration and civil society people who are excited by the rhetoric at the beginning of the administration, but not exactly feeling like they're they're being included. And so, I think the Lopez Obrador administration. Has it has an opportunity? It's not too late for them. Uh, they can definitely take advantage of this economically speaking. Uh, they need more people. Uh, one person we talked to said by 2030, Mexico is going to need to import people just to fill all of the right. jobs in their economy. I mean, this should be seen as uh, you know, you should never see vulnerable people uh, by only through an opportunity lens. But I think for Mexico, there's a there's an opportunity for them to to really benefit from this. And oh, by the way, be a, a global leader, which is something that they I think and, and a regional leader, which is something that they aspire to as well. You guys and CSIS is publishing a report on all of these issues. Um, when is going to come out and, and where uh, just for our audience to to keep in mind? Absolutely. So the Project on Prosperity and Development here at CSIS will be producing a report on irregular migration. We'll be looking at the Mexico case study. We'll also be looking at Ghana and Eritrea and just some broader trends that we see as a follow-on to our report. Uh, that will be available to all of your listeners later this spring. Thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Ariel, Thanks, for joining Princess. us. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at csis.org.